0: Scripture today is John chapter 3 verses 22 through 30. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification, and they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, good morning, everybody, and I'm Tom. Uh, Welcome to the Leawood campus. Uh, We're so glad you are here, and I have the joy of serving on our teaching team, and uh, just uh, really grateful you're here in person today. Well, the film Amadeus, uh, if you have observed it, is a brilliant film. It was set in the 18th century of Vienna. And it tells a story, if uh, you are aware of this brilliant movie, it tells a story, a true story, of court composer Antonio Soleri and uh, his intense rival, Amadeus Mozart. So early in life, the story goes that Antonio Soleri promised his undying devotion to God. That is if... God would make him a great composer. But the unimaginably talented yet morally reprobate Amadeus Mozart bursts onto the scene, right? He overshadows everyone with his talent. And yes, he destroys Soleri's dreams of being this great and grand composer with the applause of the crowd. Soleri's insatiable desire for greatness and glory. This movie, like I don't think anything else I've ever seen, portrays the downward spiral of toxic envy and our human heart's insatiable desire for greatness and glory. It captures the sense of Soleri's tormented soul. And uh, if you have seen the movie, you know that it has an opening scene that is quite compelling. Sillery tries to commit suicide and he calls a priest to offer confession for his seething hatred of his rival Mozart. And I think this film again confronts us with such powerful truths about our own hearts that is, envy's deep darkness, its toxicity to the human soul, and its destructive power in human relationships. I think it's fair to say one of the most toxic conditions of your heart and mine, of every human heart, is envy. And so too are its close, prideful siblings of jealousy and vain glory. Now, if you would, think with me for a moment about students, a fellow student at school, right, that appears to be more attractive, smarter, more athletic, more talented, and has greater opportunities than you at school. Or think of me of a work colleague. Who is that person that comes to mind, who, whose gifts and talents continually outshine you? You know that person, you know who they are, that gets the promotion right, that you wanted and you think you deserve. So let me ask you, are you truly rejoicing in their successes? Or are their successes something that you increasingly resent? Or how do you respond, we all get these, to that family who, during Christmas, send the perfect picture of their family, right? And their Christmas letter hails, the most remarkable, above, super above average children with their stunning achievements. See, isn't it very easy to idealize and long for what is out of our reach? Envy and jealousy comes knocking, does it not? At each one of our hearts door. And let me be transparent. Pastors, and you know this, are no exceptions. The big elephant in the room of many pastor or clergy gatherings is the envy and anxiety-driven comparison of size of church, budgets, preaching talents, speaking opportunities, and publishing success. I want you to be ha- peek behind the professional shiny curtains. Some of the most damaging clergy scandals across the broader church and church meltdowns that are increasingly visible to us today are driven by the fragmentation of life, seduction of power, prideful envy, and the ever-growing cult of celebrity vainglory. I would suggest that most likely each of us will have a bit of a Mozart in our lives. The question is, how will we respond when toxic envy and jealousy comes knocking at our hearts door? I do have good news for you in the midst of that dark subject. There is an antidote the poisonous, heart-toxic nature of envy and jealousy. What is that antidote? If you have a Bible with you, turn with me to the Gospel of John in the New Testament, chapter 3. Now, if you've been a part of our conversation as a church family, we are exploring John's brilliant and amazing Gospel. Last week, as we entered into chapter three, we encountered brilliant Rabbi Nicodemus, who comes to brilliant Jesus, Rabbi Jesus, in the evening and has a conversation centered on what saving faith is and why it matters so much. So keep that in mind as we continue down the road of chapter three. We are going to discover that saving faith beckons us down the path of Christ like humility. That is, y'all, the antidote. The only antidote to envy and jealousy. So if you're following along, beginning in verse 22 of John 3, the Gospel writer John, there's a lot of Johns we're going to talk about here. There's John the Baptist and John the Gospel writer, so I'll try to keep that in front of us. But he speaks of another John, the Gospel writer, as John the Baptist. What we do see right away in the context is Jesus' popularity is rising fast, like super fast and John's the Baptist popularity is declining super fast. Well, of course, not everyone is happy about that. And we are told in verse 26 that some of John the Baptist's disciples come to John the Baptist and say literally, "Hey, they're all going to Jesus." It's like in our context Jesus is getting all the press Jesus is going viral, right? He's everywhere on social media and he's the Twitter king. This is the picture. So how does John the Baptist respond? His response is stunning. And this is where John the writer wants us to focus this morning. We have in front of us an inspiring and instructive portrait of humility that is stunning. And there are three observations I think this text brings to the surface that I'd like us to focus on this morning. Verses 27 through 30. The first observation is this. Humility grows... When all of life, all of our life, all of your life is seen as a grace gift. Look at verses 27. John answered, this is John the Baptist, answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. Now notice with me that in John's response, there is not even a hint of jealousy or envy. There is no comparison, no sense of rivalry. Instead, there is just grateful affirmation because John looks to the sovereignty of God here, right? Complete sovereignty of God over everything. It's what helps him understand Jesus' popularity, but also his lessening popularity. There is no sense of deserving entitlement here at all. At the heart of humility, we must grasp, there is a clear recognition that God is God and we are not God. That God is absolutely, ultimately sovereign and in charge. But isn't it true, friends, how easy it is and perilous it is to pridefully pretend that somehow we are God? Right? We don't usually say that explicitly, but we often operate like that, right? How easy it is to confuse our rightful human agency with God's ultimate sovereignty. Now think with me for a moment. Do we daily recognize everything we are, everything we have, the very air we breathe as ultimately a grace gift from God himself, from his benevolent heart and hand? And and again, on that, do we recognize God's sovereign hand over the lives and circumstances of others, particularly when they have been entrusted with amazing abilities and talents and success? And so what we see first in this brilliant portrait of humility, that John the Gospel writer shines on John the Baptist, is that humility grows when all of life is seen as a grace gift. But notice where this text goes, and it's the second observation about humility. Humility also grows when Jesus becomes more and more. Look at verses 28 through 29. John the Baptist continues, You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ. That means the Messiah. But I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is, the idea is overflowing. It's complete. It's full. Now, do you notice how John the Baptist simply points joyfully to Jesus? And in doing so, John embraces his own particular calling, and that is specifically being a forerunner. So the biblical text is, think of it like this. The John the Baptist is to lay the red carpet for Jesus to walk on. I love how John the Baptist deploys the metaphor of weddings. Don't you love weddings? At least most of them. As as a pastor or clergy person, I love weddings. I've done a lot of them. See my gray hair? I've done a lot of them. And I love every one of them, mostly. There are a few that, well, are challenging. There's some crazy things that happen at weddings. And one of the crazy things about pastors or clergy getting together is to talk about wedding crazies. I just want you to know that. Like, the craziest in my time was the father of the bride who actually stood by the altar and picked up his cell phone for a call during the ceremony when he was handing off his daughter. True story. But weddings, for the most part, are joy-filled. They really are. They're filled with joy, and I just love to bask in them. And one thing about weddings across cultural context is you can count on at least one thing, that the focus of the wedding is the bride and the bridegroom, right? Yeah. But there is a special place of honor, and certainly in the first century culture, and in the culture today, is being the matron of honor or the best man. And John, the Baptist, is basically saying, hey, you know, I'm, I'm like the best man to Jesus. He's the groom, but I'm the best man. Anyway, when it comes to the Jesus' popularity thing, it's all right and good. I'm all good with that. It's a big sovereign God thing after all. And I'm, I'm not only good with that, I'm content with that. I'm exceedingly joyful with that. That I can just be the best man of the groom. The idea here is that John the Baptist, I could not be more happy or thrilled about Jesus becoming more and more and more and more. And when we walk back in time, <laughs> the frailness of our own humanity, put on the sandals, In John the Baptist's feet, we begin to be overwhelmed with awe at John the Baptist's extraordinary humility. Now, pause with me for a moment and walk back with me. Put yourself in John the Baptist's sandals. And think with me, as you read scripture, engage it with some imagination about not only what happened, but what would have happened if that didn't happen, okay? Think of John the Baptist's response of Jesus' rising popularity. What if it had been different? What if John the Baptist's heart had been filled with envy and jealousy? What if instead of spotlighting, if you ever thought about spotlighting Jesus, John the Baptist was a jealous and envious and selfish, ambitious dude, who undermined Jesus completely? What if John the Baptist had sought to diminish Jesus every turn and exalt himself? How would our story be different? Yet there is not a hint of prideful ego, selfish ambition, envy, or jealousy, or vainglory. It's only gratitude and humility. And you have to ask yourself the question, So how did John the Baptist get to this point, for goodness sakes? John the writer gives us some clues earlier in the gospel. Remember, and this is particularly featured in chapter one, it was John the Baptist's credibility and influence, was it not, that helped catapult Jesus from complete obscurity in Galilee to visibility in the entire nation of Israel. So from a human vantage point, we may say, the John the Baptist gave Jesus his big career break. Think, think of a very popular band, for example, or a superstar artist. And often in concerts, if you love have concerts like I do, there's a warm-up band or a warm-up artist, right? That's not as well known, but the superstars give them that shot. Imagine what would happen if the warm-up band after the concert became the talk of the town. Not only the talk of the town, the talk of the world. You know, like, the warm-up band is going viral. Everybody's superstar-focused. It begins to shoot right up, and the main superstar begins to drop. Right? This is the picture, viscerally, that the writer, gospel writer John, wants us to enter into as a reader. And more than that, we know... earlier in John, that in chapter one, that at least two, maybe more, but at least two of Jesus' lead disciples were actually first disciples of John the Baptist. John the Baptist initially trained them. He found them. He invested in them. And John, the writer, tells us, The minute they met Jesus, they were gone. They followed Jesus. What a heart test for John the Baptist. His open hands of humility are stunning. There's no clenched fist here of pride. Only extraordinary humility. And actually, if you're still with me, I I think Jesus marveled with delight at John the Baptist's humility. Why do I say that? Well, today, right, we hear a lot about GOATs, right, G-O-A-T, right, the greatest of all time. We have in the athletic world, we have Simone Biles, right, greatest of all time, no question. And yes, we do have, even though we always like him, I don't always like him. In professional football, we have Tom Brady, right? you ever thought about who Jesus' GOAT was? Well, I think, and I have reasons, That Jesus' goat was John the Baptist. Why do I say that? In Matthew's Gospel, St. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 11, Jesus says these words as he compares John to the least in the kingdom. He says, truly I say to you, among those born of women, that's pretty inclusive, don't you think? Right? Wouldn't you say that's just about everybody? There has risen no one greater than John the Baptist. Now, I don't think. This is mere rhetorical hyperbole. What is Jesus saying? (laughs) Up to this point in history, John the Baptist is the greatest of all time. Now let's remember in Old Testament history, hey, there are a lot of pretty impressive men and women. Spiritual leaders, prophets before John's time. Many of them the who's who, the hall of faith. Yes, they had their failings, but they were amazingly faithful to God. What is our Lord Jesus saying not one of them could it be said as Jesus said of John the Baptist among these born of women no one has arisen greater than he and I think John the gospel writer is letting us sit in the reality of the goat's incredible humility but also notice not just humility do you notice that as you read this text, as you feel this text, as you live into this text, John the Baptist's joy is palpable. Let's not miss also that John's words here reveal his prophetic anticipation of being a part of a joyful future wedding day when all followers of Jesus, his bride, the church, will experience the joy of eternity with the of God in the new heaven's earth. After all, This picture is written also by the gospel writer John. The last book of the Bible is written by the gospel writer John who paints that future wedding day in the future wedding of the Lamb. Hmm. What do you think the gospel writer John is doing here? Brilliant. Stunning. So a growing humility, right, builds in our lives when Jesus becomes more and more. Humility moves deeper in the fabric of our souls and hearts. And as it moves deeper, greater joy surfaces. Now, we may think joy and happiness comes from another path, like human praise, right? Or achieving greater visibility or greater success. Yet Jesus tells us, through John's words, the joy becomes more when we become less and he becomes more. So the first observation on humility is what? Humility grows when all of life, all of your life and my life, everything is seen as a grace gift. But secondly, humility grows when Jesus is more and more. But lastly, notice where the crescendo of this literary section, it's called a pericope or a section in literature. The climax, the literary crescendo is verse 30, no question. Verse 30 is simple but to the point. John the Baptist says, he must increase, but I must decrease. In this resounding literary crescendo, we have articulated for all of us the essential foundation of all spiritual formation. Eugene Peterson, in his paraphrase of verse 30, puts it this way in context. This is the assigned moment for him to move into the center, that's Jesus, while John the Baptist I slip off to the sidelines. In essence... John is getting out of the way for Jesus to do his work. That is what humility does. Now, notice also, for those of you who love literature, from a literary perspective of the entire book of John, verse 30 is embodied here in structure. For example, in John's gospel structure, John the Baptist virtually fades into the background of obscurity while Jesus emerges on the center stage. Here in the Gospel of John, apart from a short cursory mention in chapter 4, verse 1, this is the last time John the Baptist appears in the Gospel of John by intention. In essence, these are John the Baptist's last recorded words, which again across culture, highlights their vital importance. What are they? He must increase, but I must decrease. And I may suggest for your consideration, these words might well be the banner over all spiritual formation into greater Christ-likeness. Dallas Willard, as he brilliantly does, frames humility as the foundation, the foundation of all virtue. He writes these wonderful words in a fantastic book called A Renovation of the Heart. Next what? Got a verse? Okay, I'll quote her here. Humility is the framework within which all virtue lives. If growing Christ-like humility is the antidote to toxic envy and jealousy, it is a foundational building block of spiritual formation. So, how do you, how do I grow in Christ-like humility? This is the intense and focused question of our application this morning. And I want to suggest for your reflection and my reflection three questions that I would like you to consider. I'd like you to, if you're doing the form.life or you have a form.life journal, I would encourage you to write these questions down and reflect on them this week. Three questions. How, first, is Jesus increasing in my life? Cultivating Jesus' loving presence and embracing joyful obedience to Jesus in every dimension of our lives will bring greater humility to our hearts. Jesus gives us this amazing invitation in Matthew 11, 20 through 30. An invitation to apprenticeship. Intimate apprenticeship with him. Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The word rest means the life God has designed for us. But how? Take my yoke and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble of heart, and you will find rest for your soul, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. In Jesus' great invitation, we enter his training yoke, and we become his apprentice in every dimension of life. Now, yoked with Jesus, the apostle Paul put apprenticeship this way, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Jesus increases... When Jesus is the greatest love of our hearts. When we pursue intimacy with him. And he is invited into every part of our daily lives. Jesus increases. How does he? Well, Jesus increases when we not only worship and serve him on Sunday as the gathered church, but when we worship and serve him on Monday as the scattered church. Jesus increases when Jesus becomes more and more present to each of us in our Monday worlds of work, of play, of work and school and recreation. Jesus becomes more and more in how we do our work, how we treat and speak to our boss or the culture we nourish or our fellow employees, and how we love our fellow church members and our neighbors, and how we serve and follow him, and how we lead our spheres of influence in our Monday world. Jesus increases when he becomes more present in our homes, in our friendships, in our families, and in our local church fellowship. And when Jesus becomes more and more, the Holy Spirit fills and empowers us for a supernatural life. Jesus increases in how we sacrificially serve our spouse or our siblings, or our roommates, or how we honor our parents. Jesus increases when we love our enemies and even those who we may disagree with. Jesus increases when we embrace the prophet Micah's words every day to seek justice, to love kindness, and what? Walk humbly with our God. Jesus reminds us he is humble and gentle of heart. And the more we spend time with him, the closer we are yoked to him. Over time, we will become increasingly like him. So here's the implication of that in your life and mine. The shallowness or the depth of the humility in your life may be the best, if not one of the best indicators of your spiritual formation. I love how Professor Rebecca Young puts it. I think the world of her, and she's a remarkable professor, a beautiful person, a remarkable professor at Calvin College. She wrote a book and just updated it recently called Glittering Vices that I highly recommend to you. But here's how she put it. The project of becoming like Christ is our life's most important task. See, the most important thing in your life and mine is not what you do. That does matter. The most important thing is who you are becoming. What is your greatest passion? What is your highest priority? What is your most important task in your life? And Jesus says, through John the Baptist, I must increase, but you must decrease. So second question or reflection, how am I decreasing in my life? See, humility is often said is not thinking less of yourself, but rather thinking of yourself less. And the scriptures call us to daily wrap our hearts and minds and bodies and relationships in the virtuous garment of humility. That is, every day like we put on clothes There's an intentionality of wrapping our lives with humility. The Apostle Peter writes this. He says, clothe yourself, 1 Peter 5, clothe yourself, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So what does it mean to clothe ourselves with humility? When we clothe ourselves in humility, we decrease in life. We stop, for example, playing God in our life and others. We stop demanding our rights. We stop having to get our way. Or having to have the last word in a conversation. We stop having to be in control. So let me ask you, how are you playing God in your life and others' lives? And What do you need to do today, tomorrow, to get out of the way of Jesus and the work he is doing in your life, your family, in your circumstance, your business? Do you have to get your way? Do you have to have the last word? Do you have to be right? How do we decrease? Well, we honor Jesus daily by seeking him in his word and in prayer. We stick like glue to others in the local church who live and are living and modeling this pattern of humility. Why? Because you know this is true. We become like those we spend time with. God has placed you in a prominent place of leadership, and many in our church across our campuses are there. Remember, at the end of the day, leadership is about fading into the background, about less visibility and more obscurity. Arthur Brooks, who is a remarkable leader, and you may read him in the Atlantic Monthly, he recently sent me his newest book, which is fantastic. It's called From Strength to Strength, The subtitle, listen to this, is Finding Success, Happiness, and Deep Purpose in the Second Half of Life. And he makes the case that in all professions, strong empirical research is telling us, you ready for this? Professional decline comes much earlier than we care to admit. Get this, usually in our 40s and 50s. And he says, rather than living in denial, he says, we need to pursue another path. In other words, instead of trying to avoid decline, he says you can transcend it by finding a new kind of success. Better than the world promises and not a source, he says, of neurosis and addiction, a deeper happiness than what you had before. When I read his book, again, (laughs) the wise and virtuous path Brooke is advocating simply echoes John the Baptist's words. He must increase, but I must decrease. But it also leads to another reflective question. You know, John the Baptist said, He must increase, but I must decrease. What John the Baptist didn't say is, others must increase. And that's what Arthur Brooks is saying. So, how am I to help others increase? To flourish at work, at home, at school, at church? How am I opening doors for others? How am I journeying with the poor, marginalized, and vulnerable? And for those of us here who are older, right, have a little more years under our belt, the stewardship of our generativity to a younger generation with our time, talents, experience, and treasure is increasingly important. In his inspired letter to the church at Philippi, the Apostle Paul calls all of us to a life of humility. And he points to Jesus, reminding us, Jesus chose the path of humility for us and before us. He says, Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death on a cross. Jesus chose the path of humility before us and for us. And the good news of the gospel for each of us is a life of humility we are called to embrace and increasingly indwell has been made possible because of what Jesus has done for us through his atoning sacrifice and his death defeating resurrection. Jesus, in breathtaking humility, lived the life we were designed to live and died the life we deserve to die. And when we embrace his generous gift of saving faith, what does Jesus do? He beckons us to walk the path of increasing Christ like humility. That humility is the antidote, the only antidote, to the dark and destructive heart toxins of envy, jealousy, selfish ambition, and vainglory. Let's pray. Father, open our hearts and minds to the teaching of your scriptures. I think, Lord, of that middle-aged monk who wrote these words anonymously. Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. You are my inheritance now and always. Now and now only, first in my heart. High King of heaven, my treasure thou art. Oh o Lord, lead us down a path of greater humility for your glory and for our love of our neighbor.